Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Once it happened that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, needed to send a letter to the Roman Emperor. He called in his secretary, Rabbi Asaf, and said, I need you to write while I dictate a letter to the Emperor. Rabbi Asaf sat down and wrote the salutation. From Rabbi Yehuda the Prince to our Lord the Emperor Antonius. Rabbi Yehuda read what Asaf had written, tore it up and threw it away. Why did you do that? What's wrong with that? Asaf asked. Rabbi Yehuda said, It should say, To our Lord the Emperor from your servant Yehuda. Don't put my name in front of his name, and don't call me Judah the Prince when talking to the Emperor. Call me Judah your servant. Rabbi Asaf didn't like this. He complained, Rabbi Yehuda, why are you lowering your dignity? Why would you humble yourself when writing to an idolater like the Roman emperor? Put your name first. Why not call yourself the Nasi, the prince? That's what you are to the sages. Why debase yourself and call yourself the emperor's servant? Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi replied, Am I better than my forefather Jacob? When he sent his servants out to meet Esau on the road, he sent them with a message. He told his servants, When you see Esau, thus shall you say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. During Parsha Chayisara, we studied the story of Abraham's servant Eliezer and how Abraham sent him on a mission to Haran to obtain a spouse for his son Isaac. And I showed you how the apostles took their cues from this story. They derived their sense of mission and their mode of prayer in the master's name from this story. Just as Eliezer identified himself only as the servant of Abraham, that is, the slave of Abraham, they always, the apostles, always identified themselves as servants of Yeshua, that is, the slaves of Yeshua. Remember that the distinction between servant and slave does not exist in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word evid gets translated into our English Bibles as either servant or slave, but it's an artificial distinction. It means slave. An evid is a human being owned by someone else. Why do we refer to Yeshua as master? This is the title by which a slave addresses his owner. Yeshua said, A slave is not above his master, nor is a disciple above his teacher. You call me master and teacher. And rightfully so, for so I am. Though he himself came among us as one who serves, we are in relation to him as his servants, moreover, as his slaves. Think of his many parables in which he compares himself to a man who goes away on a journey and leaves his slaves in charge of his affairs and household. We are to understand ourselves as Yeshua's slaves. This is similar to what Hashem said regarding all the children of Israel. He said, They are my slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. 
This explains why Isaiah refers to the nation of Israel as the Eved Hashem, the servant of the Lord, a title which he also applies to the Messiah, the King of Israel, as the chief slave of the Lord, servant of the Lord. Moreover, the service of Hashem is the worship of Hashem. It's called the Avodah, a Hebrew word ordinarily used to describe the service rendered by an Eved, a slave. You can hear the root word Eved inside the word Avodah. It's the service a slave renders to his or her master. In the Bible and in Judaism, the daily prayers and the observances of the Torah, particularly the ceremonial, ritual, liturgical, and Levitical observances, are generally, collectively, referred to as the Avodah, that is, the service. We also translate it as worship. But that's why we speak of a worship service as a service. One engaged in worship is in is engaged in the service of the king, serving a master. In our previous studies in Ephesians, I pointed out that every Jewish male has this status of Eved Hashem, slave of the Lord, in that he has no exemptions from the service, the Avodah of Hashem. He is responsible for the ceremonial, ritual, liturgical, and Levitical observances of the Torah. And this is the reason the daily prayers require every adult Jewish male to acknowledge every morning that he is not a woman, not a Gentile, and not a slave. That is, not a slave to someone else. All of those categories of people have exemptions from the Avodah. And so do children under the age of Bar Mitzvah. We saw how the epistle to the Ephesians addresses these differences. The first several chapters address the distinctions between Jewish people and Gentile disciples, emphasizing their unity as one new metaphysical identity in Messiah, but without losing sight of the differentiation between Jews and Gentiles along the way. The emphasis is put on unity and mutual submission, despite differences. The Gentile disciples are said to be being built together with the Jewish disciples, on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. This new identity has implications for the Gentile disciples. While not making them Jewish, it imposes a higher moral standard derived from the scriptures of Israel, which Paul makes clear in his discussions on living as children of light. After his preliminary discussion about the relationship between Israel and the Gentile disciples, which is Ephesians 1-4, through the epistle goes on to discuss the other distinctions in obligation to the service of Hashem, women, children, and slaves, three classes of people that enjoy some level of exemption to the Avodah. Paul addresses their relationship dynamics, husbands and wives in Ephesians 5.22-33, children and parents in Ephesians 6.1-4, and slaves and masters in Ephesians 6, 5-9. through 9. The new identity found in Messiah transforms each of these relations, just as it has transformed the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Paul presents rules governing each relationship to explain how the new identity in Messiah impacts it. 
Husbands and wives are described as one flesh, but their roles differ dramatically. Husbands must love their wives sacrificially, but wives must submit to their husbands as to the master. Likewise, children and parents share a close union, but with different roles, privileges, and responsibilities. Children must honor and obey their parents, and parents must instruct their children in the discipline of discipleship and godliness. Finally, he addresses the implications for slaves and their masters. That's what we're looking at today. As Yeshua himself said, no one can serve two masters. Therefore, a slave is considered exempt from the avodah because he is not master of his own time and decisions. He belongs to a competing master. In practical terms, this means that a Jewish slave was not required to pray at the set times of prayer or to offer prescribed sacrifices or to don tefillin and tzitzit and various other obligations of Jewish law unless his master required it of him. This is also why God doesn't want his people to be slaves to others. They are his slaves. It's important to point out that we are not discussing biblical slavery as spelled out in the Torah. Those laws, which discuss laws for Jewish slave owners in possession of Jewish slaves, essentially reduce slavery to a six-year term of indentured servanthood, after which the slave must be released and even compensated for his labors. That's not the type of slavery in view here. That's not how Roman slavery worked. Roman slavery was real slavery. And it was common. In Ephesians, Paul is speaking about slavery as it existed in the Roman world. This is not the first time Paul invokes the Roman institution of slavery. Earlier in the epistle, we discussed the concept of manumission within the Roman household. Paul utilized that institution as a useful metaphor to explain a Gentile disciple's role in the kingdom when juxtaposed against the national identity of Israel. He compared Gentile disciples within the family of Israel to the household servant or slave in a Roman household who has gone through manumission to become an honorary member of the family. In some cases, such a slave was allowed to take the family's surname and through that process obtain Roman citizenship. Paul's parents, or perhaps his grandparents, may have gone through that very process back in Tarsus, and that's probably how Paul obtained citizenship. It also explains his association with the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem. That's what they were, freed men. In the Roman economy, slaves were considered property. Roman law protected the rights of slave owners, but it accorded no legal personhood to a slave. Even though manumission was a possibility, it almost never happened. Most slaves would never be freed. Without legal protections, slaves were subject to any kind of corporal punishment or torture their masters might impose, and if a slave owner killed his slave, that was his business. Slaves were used for sex. In the Roman world, prostitutes were almost always slaves. In first century Italy, 
about 40% of the population were slaves. Across the rest of the empire, the numbers were somewhere around 15%. That doesn't mean everyone had slaves. Only the elite upper class owned slaves, but they had lots of them. It's not a surprise that a lot of the disciples in Paul's community, in Paul's communities, were slaves, or even that some of them were owners of slaves. The epistle to Philemon deals directly with that issue. Philemon was a disciple of Yeshua in Colossae, and he owned a slave named Onesimus who escaped to Rome, where he became a disciple under Paul's influence. With all of this background on slavery in place now, we are ready to look at some more of Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would the Messiah. Ephesians 6, 5. The apostle directs slaves to obey their earthly masters. Earthly masters. The Greek term translated earthly master is more literally translated master according to the flesh. Your physical master, your physical masters. The Greek term translated earthly masters is more literally translated masters according to the flesh. That is your physical masters. Paul's need to distinguish one's master as a physical master implies the existence of a spiritual master. He reminds the disciples in slavery that their earthly masters are not their real masters. Instead, they are slaves to Yeshua, their spiritual master. This is similar to Yeshua's saying about persecution. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Matthew 10, 28. Paul directs the disciples in slavery to obey their earthly masters sincerely and devoutly with fear and trembling, as if they were serving the Messiah himself, who in turn is the Eved Hashem, the slave of the Lord. In this way, Paul reconciles the difficulty raised by the teaching of Yeshua when he states, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. By serving the earthly master to honor the heavenly master, the believing slave casts his full allegiance with Yeshua. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would the Messiah, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of the Messiah, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Ephesians 6, 5-7 through 7. In the slave-owning cultures, the lazy slave is proverbial. The typical slave shirks his duties and responsibilities and only makes a show of working hard while under direct supervision. The master's parables make reference to slaves misbehaving when their masters are absent. The proverbs of Jewish wisdom literature encourage slave owners to impose strict measures. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. Proverbs 29 19. 
It's easy to understand why a slave would attempt to do as little as possible. He has no incentive to work hard or to show himself to be industrious, since his efforts will benefit only his master. A slave should not be expected to do more than the barest minimum he or she was forced to do. Paul calls slaves, who are also disciples, to adopt a higher standard of service. They are to work not by the way of eye service a reference to direct supervision. In keeping with the master's teaching about going the extra mile and exceeding what is required of us, Paul calls upon slaves to show themselves responsible and diligent even in the absence of direct supervision. They are not to act as people pleasers. Instead, they are to remember that they are slaves of Messiah. Therefore, they should carry out their duties as if for Yeshua. The instructions invoke the story of Joseph, who performed his service in the house of Potiphar with such excellence and diligence that Potiphar elevated him to head of household. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This higher-level work ethic that exceeds expectations has practical implications in today's workplace. The disciple of Yeshua should be among the highest caliber of employee, working with alacrity, diligence, integrity, and attention to detail. I once met a house painter who worked with his son, painting houses in Minneapolis. He told me that before he started work on a house, he would always tell his son, this house belongs to Jesus, and that's who who we are working for. Then they would give the job their best effort, as if serving their heavenly master, the Messiah. That's how a disciple should set about fulfilling the duties of his or her employment. If so, how much more so should the same principle apply to our service of the Messiah who says, Why do you call me master, master, and do not do what I tell you? Luke 6.46 With fear and trembling, we should serve Yeshua not playing religious games, but exercising real, honest, sincere, heartfelt submission to our heavenly master. Our discipleship should be real and not a charade. We should not act one way in private and another in public, but always conduct ourselves in the knowledge that his eyes are ever upon us. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Ephesians 6.8 Paul encourages slaves to serve their earthly masters with fear and trembling as a component of their fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge that God exists and that he rewards righteousness and punishes wickedness. Those who conduct themselves in a God-fearing manner, according to the fear of the Lord, have confidence that, ultimately, their actions in this lifetime, whether good or bad, receive a recompense. There is a reward for the righteous and a punishment for sin, whether in this life or the next. In the Torah, Joseph might have complained that there is no reward for the good service he had rendered his earthly master. He served Potiphar with fear and trembling, and what did it get him? He ended up in prison on false charges. 
But the story wasn't over yet. And neither is our story over yet. Knowing this, that there is compensation to be paid out by God for all the good we do, we can serve our earthly masters cheerfully and with a pure heart, regardless of how well they might reward us or how we are mistreated by them. If this principle applies to the workplace, how much more so to the service of our heavenly master? And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Ephesians 6, nine. Having addressed the slaves, Paul turns to address the believing slave owners on the other side of the relationship. He tells the slave owners to do the same things to them, meaning that they should treat their slaves with integrity, honesty, purity, and goodwill, both in public and private. They should keep in mind that God is watching them and will recompense them for the good or the evil that they do to their slaves. The apostle points out that, spiritually speaking, both the slave owner and the slave share the same heavenly master. This principle adjures the slave owner to treat their slaves not as property, but as fellow human beings. They are to grant them dignity, remembering that the distinction between slave and master exists only in this world, in the sight of heaven All men are equal, and before God, there is no partiality, and there is no partiality with him. Ephesians 6, 9. This directive to slave owners has practical implications for how we treat those in our employ and for how we treat anyone occupying a lower social station than ourselves. It also has ramifications for the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, which ultimately is the theme of the epistle to the Ephesians. And there is no partiality with him. Ephesians 6.9 The Greek translated, there is no partiality with him, could be more literally translated to read that with God there is no respect of faces. This turn of phrase harkens back to Peter's initial revelation in the household of Cornelius, where he used the same term in his surprising declaration, Truly, I now understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Acts 10, 34, and 35. That revelation to Peter became the theological basis for welcoming Gentiles into the school of Yeshua's disciples and for granting them standing in the kingdom. It is the origin of Paul's frequently repeated axiom about the equal standing of Jewish and Gentile disciples before God in Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in the Messiah, Yeshua, Galatians 3.28. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but the Messiah is all and in all, Colossians 3.11. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same master is master of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 12, and 13. Yet, as regards this world, according to the flesh, such distinctions do remain in place. And these relationships still need to be navigated, even for Yeshua believers. It's possible to be a believing slave or a believing slave owner who both acknowledge that their real master is the Messiah. In that regard, they are equals and there is no distinction between them. In terms of this world, according to the flesh, however... There remains a distinction, just as there remains distinction between children and adults, and just as there remains distinction between husbands and wives, and between Jews and Gentiles, and their respective roles and obligations in Messiah. Ultimately, the lesson regarding slaves and masters teaches us that we are not to see ourselves as our own masters. To be your own master is to be a slave to sin and self. As our master says, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Bob Dylan puts it succinctly in his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. One who lives for himself or herself serving himself alone has a cruel and relentless taskmaster. It's a life of slavery to the evil inclination. The apostles teach us that we do not serve ourselves, rather we are slaves of the Messiah. We are owned by the Messiah, bought and paid for by the Messiah, and therefore we endeavor not to do our own will but his will, even as he sets aside his will for the sake of his fathers, whether we be slave or free in this world, according to the flesh, child or adult, male or female, Jew or Gentile. We all share a common master. We are servants of Messiah, fellow bond servants with the apostles and disciples, and slaves to righteousness. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul